of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Well, hey, Cornwall Church, so glad that you are connecting, you are engaging with your church today. If we've not met, my name is Scott Moon. I'm the next-gen pastor here, and uh, it is incredible to have the opportunity to share a few thoughts with you. Um, Before we get to those, I want to just say happy Thanksgiving. I hope that whatever your Thanksgiving looked like, that it was um, full of joy, and hopefully at least somebody that is important to you and and that on that day you were able to pause and just consider the ways that God is so faithful and so good and be able just to express gratitude to him. Now, if you haven't been with us for a little bit, I want to just do a quick recap of some of the main points of our series called Kingdom Culture which is based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is the, the Gesot, the greatest sermon of all time in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And if you haven't read that, or if you haven't read it in a while, I would encourage you to make time to read it. But just to hit on a few of the things that Jesus says in this incredible sermon that is directed to his disciples and others who are on the mountainside with him, Jesus says a few things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you mourn. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not commit adultery or even lust. And be concerned about honoring God rather than impressing others. Again, this message, this this sermon that Jesus gives calls us to be radically different, not somewhat different, but radically different from what comes naturally to us and certainly from what we see in the culture that surrounds us today and every day. And so as followers of Christ, um, we want to explore, we're going to continue to explore this sermon today to look at how he calls us to live into this kingdom culture. And I believe that as we look at the passage we are going to, to study today, that not only will it speak to us, not only will God convict us, but we will be reminded again of how timeless, relevant, and powerful God's word is for us even to this day. Now before we jump in, I wanna just create a few moments of silence where you can pray, um, you can ask God to open your heart and your mind to hear what it is he has to share with you because our hope is that every time you connect, you engage with your church, that you are coming to hear from God, that you believe that he will actually speak to you through the the sermon and the worship service that we have. So 
Here's a few moments of silence where you can just talk to God and then I will pray for us. So go ahead and take a moment. God, thanks for this time together. I pray that you would be preparing hearts and minds to hear what you want them to hear. I love you, and I pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, wherever you are, if you're in Skagit, if you're in Bellingham, in the buildings, if you're online, if you're in your living room, your dining room, your bedroom, hopefully not your bathroom, but hey, if you're there, we're still glad you're with us, and you have a Bible nearby, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, because that's where we're going to pick up in the Sermon on the Mount in this sermon. Um, And as you're turning to that, I want to share a story with you. Uh, Some years ago, one of my friends, Joey, um, was getting married, and he loves adventure. So his um, best man planned an adventure. We went on a sailboat um, to Mesha Island, which is a small island in the San Juans, if you've not been there. And it was the perfect day. I mean, the sun was out. It was warm. The water was flat. I mean, we were having a great time, incredible conversation. We were laughing, just having a blast. And we come around the corner, and we see the cove where the dock is, and we quickly see that the dock is absolutely jam-packed. There is no room on the dock. And so um, we also, as we're approaching, kind of trying to think, what are we going to do? We also become acutely aware that we are being stared at hard. The people on the boats, on the dock, it's like they stopped in their tracks. The conversation came to a screeching halt, and they were just staring at us, and we felt awkward. Now, one thing to point out in this story that I haven't mentioned yet is we were on a mastless sailboat. Yeah, mastless. There was no mast, which means there's no sail, which looks a little funky, kind of like this. This is a wood piling, by the way. It is not the mast. We were on a mastless sailboat. To say the least, it wasn't the nicest boat on the water that day, and the men and women in the boats that were docked were on incredibly nice boats, and so they stopped, and I don't know what they were thinking, because they didn't share their thoughts, but I believe it was probably something along the lines of like, what the heck is happening there? Or something like, look at these jokers, (laughs) and to be fair, this was our sea-bearing vessel. It was unique, to say the least, but it felt so uncomfortable. Have you been in a position like that? Where where somehow you become acutely aware of the fact that somebody is staring hard at you and you receive that stare as though they are judging you? They're looking down on you for one reason or another? I think every single one of us as people, as a person, has experienced judgment in one way or another. And I think what's universally true is that's not a positive experience for any of us. But what I don't know is how you were specifically affected by that judgment. How did that change the way you saw yourself in that moment? How did that impact a relationship that you had with somebody? Because the reality is judgment isn't just looking, it's the words that are said to us as well. Does that judgment that you experience still affect you today? Does that judgment change the way you live your life today, even though you felt judged a long time ago? How have you been judged? How have you been hurt by being judged? 
And on the flip side of that same coin, we have to ask ourselves, how have we judged others? Because as much as all of us have judged or have been judged, we have also judged others. Can you think of a time when you elevated yourself and you looked down on somebody else for one reason or another, and in that moment, you felt superior, you made that snap decision, was like, I can't believe you fill in the blank. Now, to, in case you're having a hard time coming up with some of those examples, I want to share just a few pictures with you that maybe will um, bring back some um, memories to the forefront of your mind of times where you've been judging. So, Maybe you were at Fred Meyer and you saw a lady who had a purse and then you realized that there was actually a dog in the purse and then you realized that it was a purse only for a dog. Maybe you saw that. Or maybe you've been in the gym and you've had the screamer, the guy who is just like, Sah! and you're going, are you serious? Do you need to make that much? Maybe that's what you experienced. Or what about this? You're driving down the road and you see one of these plates. How do you judge the person behind the wheel? Or, need I say more? This couldn't even happen today because you can only buy one pack at a time, but if you saw that, what would be running through your mind? Okay, turning a corner a little bit, what about this? You're driving on the road and you see somebody texting. What are your judgments that you put upon them? What about this? You're driving down the road and you see a Black Lives Matter sign in somebody's yard. Or you see a Blue Lives Matter flag hanging from somebody's porch. What's your response? Or what about President Donald Trump or President-elect Joe Biden? When you see these men in the news, how do you view them? Or what about this? In our day, like literally today, I wonder if this has become the thing on the forefront of our mind which is masks or not masks. And we are living at a time when there is so much judgment shown to somebody who is doing the opposite of what you think is right. Whether that's they're wearing a mask and you think it's unnecessary, or whether they are not wearing a mask and you are very concerned and you have a mask maybe similar to this lady that is thorough in trying to keep you safe and healthy. There are so many more pictures that I could put up here that come from our everyday life, but have you judged others? Have you judged others? Do these pictures bring to mind times that you have judged another person, where you have looked down on them, you've condescended to them, whether you said anything or not, but you know in your heart and in your mind that you look down on them in that snap moment, a snap decision that you made, you look down on them. I would say that judgment has always been a real struggle for people throughout all time, but in these last eight, nine months, I think that judgment has elevated, it has escalated, because there is so much happening in our state, in our country, and in our world that we are feeling full, we don't understand a lot of things, we aren't sure about a lot of things, and yet we are more opinionated than ever, and our threshold for curiosity or our interest in curiosity is less because we feel like there's less room for us to actually receive more information, and the result is we, are, we tend to be edgy, frustrated, and closed off to others thinking. And to put it mildly, it's been pretty ugly. It's been pretty ugly. Um, I live in Linden, and this summer there was a March for Black Lives. 
And I was talking to my neighbor, great guy, loves Jesus. And um, in that conversation, he said something to the effect of, I have to assume that anyone who is walking in that march fully embraces all of what the uh, Black Lives Matter organization stands for. And I said, whoa, you think that every single person lines up 100% with what the Black Lives organization stands for? And he said, yes. And I said, so if I was walking in that today, you would assume that of me. And he paused. And he said, yeah. He, a great man, a man who loves Jesus and yet was expressing such judgment, such assumption about those walking in a march for black lives. And yet, if I'm being totally honest with you, in that moment, I was judging him. I was looking down on him because he had that belief. Judgment is a very real thing in our day. It always has been, but I feel like in our day, it is even um, more common than it's ever been. It is we are quicker to judge than ever before. And as we jump into um, this part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, we will quickly see that judgment is, judgment is not a part of Jesus' kingdom culture. It is not a part of Jesus' kingdom culture. Matthew 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge. Do not judge. This is a command. This is an explicit command. You, if you love me, if you're following me, you are called not to judge other people. In the way that Jesus uses the word judge, what he's implying, inferring, is that we would elevate ourselves to a position of authority where we then have the right to condemn another person. And Jesus says, this is not for anyone who calls me their Lord and Savior. If we are a child of God, Jesus is commanding us to not judge others. That brings up this question, why? Why is judgment such a concern for Jesus? And I want to share three things um, that come to my mind. The first is judgment inherently, judgment inherently inhibits our ability to live according to the way he calls us to. When we look at the great commandment and the great commission, the great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The great um, commission is go into all the world, preach the good news, baptize in my name, and teach them how to live and obey my commands. Live for, live out and obey my commands. We can't do that if we are judging because judging builds barriers between us and others. Judging distances us from others. When we judge when we judge, we have to some degree disregarded them or canceled them. And we cannot love others well when we are distancing ourselves from them. We cannot share the gospel with others when we are condescending to them, when we're looking down to them. So Jesus says, do not judge, because when you do, you cannot. You cannot obey the great commandment. You cannot reflect the great commandment or the great commission. The second is this, that, that when we judge others, it hardens our heart and our mind. 
it hardens our heart and mind. We begin to see others differently as we more commonly and more frequently judge them. It creates that separation. It hardens our heart to them, and it can even harden our heart to God's plans. Let me give you a great example. Um, at the table, our young adults ministry, we've been looking at the gospel through the lens of Jonah. And if you haven't read Jonah in a while, at some point you should check it out. It is so, so good. But in this book, I'm going to give you a brief, brief overview. In this book, God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, let's go to Nineveh. Jonah says, nope, I'm going to the other side of the world. He gets on a boat. God says, I'm not done with you. A storm comes on the boat. Jonah gets thrown over the boat. He's in the water. He's going to drown, but God graciously sends a fish. The fish swallows Jonah. He's in the fish for three days. He repents. He turns back to God. Then the God says to the fish, go spit Jonah up on dry land, which is a great thing for Jonah, but being puked up by a fish, maybe not the best, but he's on dry land, and I imagine in that moment he's like yes he's thankful God shows up and says so let's go to Nineveh now the capital city of Assyria a people who had done some terrible things to the Israelites and Jonah reluctantly says yes God says to Jonah here's your message as you're walking through this great city 120,000 people as you're walking through the message is repent or you are going to perish repent or you are going to perish and Jonah does that. He's obedient. And what is shocking to Jonah is that, starting with the king, every person in Nineveh begins to repent and turn toward God. They begin to repent for the evil things that they've done, and they turn towards God. And it says, Jonah says, God, you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But what we see in Jonah chapter 4 reflects the hardness of heart because of the judgment that he had passed on the Ninevites, on the Assyrians. He basically shakes his fist at God and says, God, I knew it! I knew it! You are a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And I just knew that if I went, if I went to Nineveh and if I said what you told me to say, that they would repent. And he is upset with God for his faithfulness to his character because what, what Jonah wants is for God to rain fire down on the Ninevites and basically annihilate them. That is what Jonah wants. Jonah has judged the Ninevites and now his heart is hard towards them and he is not able to hope for redemption for them. We can be a lot more like Jonah than we would ever want to admit. When we judge others, it distances us from them. When we are distant from people, it tends to lead us to not want to or not long to see them come to Jesus. And yet, isn't that God's heart? That every person would come to know him, would come to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. So judgment is incredibly dangerous because it can harden our heart and our mind. And then the third is that our judgment hurts our relationships. Our judgment hurts our relationship. And this is highlighted in verses 1 and 2 as we continue in this passage. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Certainly there is an element to this where when we treat others, we will be held accountable to that by God. But what I believe he's also saying here is when you judge others, whether it's through your looks or your words or both, 
When you are looking down on them, that is then how they will in turn treat you. The way you speak and treat them, the way you speak to and treat them, they will speak to you and treat you in a similar manner. And in turn, you cannot be judgmental in a relationship without that relationship imploding, whether that's with friends, roommates, family members. We are not able to have a healthy relationship with someone if we are judgmental. Now, you may have noticed a reoccurring theme in these three things that I just mentioned. Um, And and the theme is this, that when we do any of these, the result is us, it's, it's we are distancing ourselves from others. And when we read about the way of Jesus, what we see is the exact opposite. Instead of distancing himself from others, he draws near to others, including those that would be commonly judged in that day by the culture that surrounded them. Let me share just a few of these interactions with you. I would love to go on and on and on because it highlights how great and amazing Jesus is, but let's just talk about four. The first is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and as a tax collector, he is greedy, and he is just basically stealing money from people, from his own people, with the Roman government backing him, meaning if anybody acts out against Zacchaeus, the Roman government will come in and punish them accordingly. He was not liked. He was judged. And yet when Jesus comes to town, he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus in a tree and he was like, let's have lunch. What? But that's the way of Jesus. He leans into people. He pursues people. Rather than distancing himself, he draws near. Uh, The sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, Jesus is reclining at a table with Pharisees all around it. They're enjoying a meal and conversation. And this woman who's known for her public sin comes in and kneels behind Jesus' feet. And we don't know exactly why. Maybe it's remorse, but she is overcome with something. And the result are a lot of tears because she wets Jesus' feet with her tears. And then she uses her hair to beautifully dry his feet before anointing his feet with perfume. And while all of this is taking place, the religious men around the table are judging her, and they're actually judging Jesus as well. When we get to around verse 52, Jesus looks to the woman and says, go, your faith has made you well. She is a victim of judgment by Uh, the culture around her, and yet Jesus' response to her is not judgment, but rather it's love. And then in Mark 5, we read this incredible interaction of Jesus with the bleeding woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She spent all the money that she has. As a woman with a bleeding problem, she was to be an outsider. She was to be outside of town, not to come into town because she would have been seen as unclean. And yet in desperation, she comes to town because she she hears that Jesus is there. And she thinks, if I can just touch the edge of his clothes, I will be healed. And so we see this incredible picture where she's reaching through the busy streets and she barely touches the edge of his clothes and it says that Jesus feels the healing power go out from him and she is instantly made well and she knows. Now Jesus could have kept walking and and kept distance between he and this woman, but what does Jesus do? He stops and he asks the question, who touched me? And eventually the woman says, I did. And Jesus, again, your faith has made you. Well, Jesus closes the gap. He doesn't build barriers. And the last that I will mention 
is in Luke 17, we read about 10 lepers that come to Jesus and they say, we believe you can heal us. Again, these men are to be outsiders. They're to live outside the city. They, they don't have frequent contact with people. They aren't supposed to be touched because of their disease. And yet they come to Jesus. They see Jesus and they say, we believe you can heal us. And Jesus says, go and see the priest and he will confirm that you are healed. Well, on the way, one of them, who is described as a foreign leper, somehow notices that he has already been healed. Maybe it's he's looking at his hands or his, his feet or his arms and he sees that the leprosy from his skin is gone and he stops on a dime. He pivots, he turns back and sprints to Jesus and with an incredibly joy-filled heart, he comes to Jesus and he praises Jesus. He is the only one of the 10 who came back to praise Jesus and to say thank you for healing me. But again, a man who would have been commonly judged in his day, did Jesus judge? No. Jesus pursued. Jesus drawed near, drew near. You see, when we look at the core of who Jesus is, when we read the Gospels, the reoccurring theme that is, is this, that at the core of Jesus is love, is love. And as a result, love is who we are called to be. Love is at the core of who he calls you and I to be as his sons and daughters. And this is highlighted in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Live a life that our life would be saturated. Every aspect of our life would be saturated with love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Jesus paid the ultimate price to communicate love, to love us. He is calling us then to reflect that love by radically loving others by radically loving others. Judging is not loving. And then 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Because God is love. Okay, do not judge. Instead, love. Okay, so let's continue in John, or excuse me, in um, Matthew 7, verse 3. This is what it says as Jesus continues this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye but pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? A couple themes I want to hit on. He's not talking about brother as in his sibling. What he's saying is um, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, he is saying why do you look at them and the speck in their eye when you have a plank in theirs. Okay, so brother is referring to that. That word is gonna come up again and again. And then the other thing that we'll see is the, the plank and speck. What does that represent? What does that symbolize? And it very simply represents the sin in our life. And it would make sense that the plank would, would somehow reflect a greater sin. So perhaps the plank could be something like murder, Whereas the speck is lying. Both are significant, both are sin, but one feels a little bit more weighty than another. So he's saying, how is it that you can look at the plank, this massive thing, in another translation it says the log in your own eye, which by the way would be a little bit painful. How can you look past that to look at the speck in your brother's eye? And basically what he's saying 
is you are focusing on the wrong thing first. You are focusing on the wrong thing first. Verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? How is it that you think that with this monstrous beam coming out of your eye that is effectively inhibiting your ability to see accurately, how is it that you think you can literally um, work around that thing to help remove a speck out of your brother's eye? Jesus here is using hyperbole to exaggerate the point that we should not judge others, that we cannot judge others when we have sin in our life that is undealt with. He is saying again, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when we have this massive beam coming out of ours? There is no way that we could effectively do that and at the same time do it gently because as we know, the eye is a tremendously um, sensitive part of our body. And so when we are helping somebody get something out of their eye, it has to be with incredible gentleness. All right, and then verse five. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You hypocrite. Your focus is on the wrong person first. First, before you can help them. He's saying, yes, you are called as a follower of Christ to come alongside your brothers to, to um, help uh, help them grow in their relationship with the Lord. Help them see the sin in their life and to gently point them back to Jesus. Yes, that is a part of your calling. But in order to do that, you first have to deal with the plank in your own eye. You first have to deal with the sin in your own life because our sin, it inhibits our ability to see others accurately. We first must deal with the sin in our own life before we are able to come alongside a brother or sister in Christ and help them, restore them to the way, the truth, and the life which is found in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. By the way, spiritual does not mean perfect, but you should restore him gently. Again, that we would gently restore our brother and sister to the way, the truth, and the life we find in the teaching and instruction of Jesus. And this requires great sensitivity, great gentleness, great empathy, great mercy. When we have the opportunity to call another up and into the way of Jesus, may we do that in a way that we think will best serve them, that has their best interest in mind. It's not from a position of right, so, of I'm right, so let me tell you what to do. It's from a position of humility, a posture of humility that we would come alongside and say, okay, how can I share this in a way that they will be able to receive it? And then as we continue in this passage, we're gonna find that it says something that's, that it feels like a hard left. It feels like, how does that have anything to do with the speck or the plank or the brother or the sister? Like, what in the world does this have to do with anything? This is what it says in verse six. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now you may be thinking, I read a commentator 
and he helps bring clarity to what Jesus is saying here. He says this, Dogs were seen as nasty animals. There's no record of them as domesticated animals that brought joy to their owners like they do today. Pigs were seen even worse. Unclean animals that the Jewish people were not to touch, not to mention eat. Perhaps what Jesus is saying is that we are to be wise in who we seek to help. If, we are, if all we are seeing are stop signs, we shouldn't act like they aren't there. What he's saying, what Jesus is saying is, yes, we are called to restore our brothers and sisters in Christ with gentleness, with mercy, with humility. But if they aren't in a place to hear it, if they aren't giving us signs that would lead us to believe that they are open to that, that in that moment, we would be patient and we would trust God and we would Wait, because even if we put something incredibly valuable in front of them, if they're not in a place to hear it, it really makes no difference. And if we force the issue, it may lead to them being frustrated, hurt, or verbally attacking us as a result. And so Jesus is saying, yes, you are called to restore them once you've dealt with the plank in your own eye. But be wise in the when and the how you have that conversation. So in this passage, Jesus is calling us to choose mercy, not judgment. To choose mercy, not judgment. Instead of, point, uh, instead of us pointing and condemning others for their choices, for their beliefs, for their sin, that we would first humble ourselves deal with our own sins so that then we are able to accurately see them and gently come alongside them. A pastor named Ryan Leake said something that I thought was really simple but very profound. He says this, judgment assumes, mercy is curious. Judgment walks into a room and says, I know your story, I know your story, I know your story, I know how you vote, I know where you land on this issue, I know, I know, I know. Judgment distances but judgment assumes, where mercy is curious. Mercy walks into a room and says, I want to know your story. I want to understand you better. I want to understand why that thing is so important to you. I want to understand why you voted for who you voted for. What is it about that what they stand for that, that makes you excited to give them your vote? Mercy is curious. Um, sometime in, in the late spring, I was uh, shown, right, I came across this new YouTube channel that was called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Um, the man who, who is the, the, the host of this, his name is Emmanuel Acho. Um, he is an ex-NFL linebacker, but as the host, he is engaging in uncomfortable uh, conversations around um, racial inequality in our day, and it's very educationally Minded, and it is. It has been incredible. So, if you have not checked that out, I would encourage you to check it out on YouTube. But one of the things that he said that got my attention was this: proximity breeds understanding. Being close to, being in relationship with, spending time with, breeds understanding. Distance breeds fear. Distance, being apart from, having a barrier between, breeds fear. There's so much wisdom in this simple phrase, and as I thought about it, I connected it to judgment, to what we've been talking about this whole time, and it's this, that proximity leads to mercy. 
Proximity leads to mercy. Being close to, being in relationship with, proximity leads to mercy where distance leads to judgment. Distance, when we are apart from, it's easy to point and say, I know, I know, I know. To better understand these two words, I want to talk about some characteristics of each. And so um, let's take a look at this. Mercy is tender where judgment is harsh. Mercy is patient where judgment is instant. Mercy is curious where judgment assumes. Mercy listens where judgment cancels. Mercy tears down barriers where judgment creates barriers. Mercy is relationship-focused where judgment is I'm right-focused. And mercy respects where judgment condemns and condescends. Let me ask you this. Which column better reflects Jesus, reflects what you know about Jesus? It's not even close. It's not even close. It's absolutely obvious. It's crystal clear. It's, it's mercy. It's mercy. And what's amazing is that Jesus reflects everything in the mercy column without abandoning the truth. He continues to stand on and teach the truth, but he remains merciful in the way he interacts with people. So let's turn a corner. Let's get really practical. Let's get everyday life practical. If we are in a place where we struggle with judging others, making that snap decision when we run to the grocery store, when we go to the coffee shop, when we're online, if we struggle with judgment, but we want to move, we want to embrace this teaching, we want to reflect this teaching, this living radically different, living into the kingdom culture, how do we get there? How do we intentionally and actively move in that direction? I want to just share three things around that. The first is this, that we must be proximate to Jesus. We must be proximate to Jesus. When we're proximate to Jesus, when we're in close relationship with Jesus, when we are regularly spending time with Jesus, we are aware of our desperate need for Jesus each and every moment of each and every day. Coming back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 3, this is what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they're helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. Blessed are those who understand that they can't do it on their own, that they are in fact not enough, that they can't carry this on their own, that they need Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, it is blessed when you acknowledge that you need me every single moment of every single day. And when we are proximate with Jesus, we remember that. We are reminded of that. And we're also reminded of God's faithfulness, his steadfastness. We are reminded that he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And it's also when we're proximate to Jesus that the Holy Spirit of God is able to open our eyes to the sin in our life, to the plank that's in our eyes, so that we can, with confidence, confess. That we can say, God, I am so sorry, knowing that when we do, he welcomes us and he says, I will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And it's only when we're proximate with Jesus that we're able to practice what's next. And that's this, that we would practice mercy. We cannot show mercy apart from God. And so the second thing, the first is that we would be proximate to Jesus. The second is that we would practice mercy. 
And that is very simply that we would flex the mercy muscle wherever you are going, when you see somebody, whether it's at home, whether it's your roommates, your wife or your husband, your children, your in-laws, people at the grocery store, at the coffee shop, wherever you go, when you're making these snap judgment decisions where you're like, I know, I know, I know, that you would intentionally shift your thinking from I know to I wonder, to here's what I think, and I wonder if that's true. Not I wonder if I'm right, but I wonder if that's true. And as we practice this, it retrains our brain away from assuming to being curious, to practicing mercy. And of course, in relationship, that we would intentionally engage with others in a merciful way. We would intentionally engage with others, and that is our next and last thing is this, that we would get proximate with the person or the people, where we don't understand that we would seek to understand, where we have judged that we would check our heart, that we would check our sin, that we would engage with them in such a way that we would be genuinely curious about them. What makes them them? Why do they believe this? What's their experience? But that we would become proximate with the person because here's the thing. If we are distant, we cannot show love. If we are distant, we cannot show mercy. If we are distant, we cannot grow in our understanding. And today, this is incredibly difficult to practice these things because we are living in a cancel culture where it's either you agree with me 100% or I want nothing to do with you. And so this can be scary. And yet, as we said at the very beginning, the way of Jesus, the kingdom culture that Jesus is calling us to live into is radically different. It risks in order to love. It risks in order to love those that are judged commonly in our culture today. Um, I want to share a story that I think is, is awesome. I mentioned um, that I'm the next-gen pastor, and as that, our, our table group, our table, the table is the name of our young adult ministry, and we've been meeting in homes and table groups, which are community groups, and, and I get to be in a group with five other guys, and in one week as we were together, one of the guys was sharing some of the medical struggles that he has, and, and he shared that he has epilepsy. And as a result, he was going to need to take some time away from our group so that he could focus on school. And what was incredible was to see the way the other guys in the group responded. They responded with mercy, not with judgment. There wasn't a, well, couldn't you just still come to group anyway? It was like, whoa, I don't know much about epilepsy. Can you tell me more? And this guy shared about the effect that epilepsy has and, and how when stress is high, that that increases the likelihood that he will have a seizure. And it was this beautiful moment where, where we, the majority of the group, grew in our understanding. And we were then able to, to better support. We were in greater relationship with this other member of our group. And I have to believe that in that moment, he felt seen and valued and loved. As followers of Jesus, we are called to imitate his love. I want to close with this. What might happen? What might happen in our day that is so divisive, so opinionated, such a cancel culture? What might happen if we all choose mercy, not judgment? If we all choose mercy, not judgment, what might the impact be? What if we choose to be tender, patient, curious in our approach to others? 
What if we are so relationship-focused that we listen to others really well, that we seek to tear down barriers that separate us, and in doing so, communicate respect, even if we don't totally agree? What might the impact of that be? What might the effect of that be? If we make this choice every day, we will be living into Jesus' kingdom culture and the redemptive, hope-filled kingdom of God will collide with this world in a beautiful way. And I see this, I believe this because I've seen it. Read the book of Acts. They are living into the kingdom culture of Jesus and what happens more and more see the beauty of God and they come into a saving relationship with him and they're baptized and they live radically different for Jesus. What is true of then can be true of now. But the question is, is will we choose mercy not judgment. Will we choose mercy, not judgment? Let's pray. Jesus, your word is living and active. It is relevant, it is powerful, it is truth. And I thank you, Lord, that you relieve us from the pressure to judge others and you just say, forget that, just love well. Just love well. God, I pray that you would help all of us figure out what does it look like in our life to choose mercy, not judgment. And Lord, that we would actively choose to be proximate with you every day. That we would intentionally practice mercy, even if it's in thinking. But then we would also get proximate with others who see things differently, whose life experience is different than us. God, that we would be curious, and in our curiosity, that we would communicate great care. God, help us live into your kingdom culture. I love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.